feel like Gordon Bombay would have taken his career to even further heights. Everything's flashy, everything's cocaine, everything's fun. Open wide for some soccer. I don't care what you think about, what your personal thoughts are at home. I care that you hate the Cowboys. Call this college rule! Welcome back, everybody, to the Sports Experience Podcast. Dom and Chris here, a couple of comics who just enjoy talking sports and uh, shooting the breeze. And uh, we got an interesting episode today. Yeah, a little bit uh, sports, a little bit off sports. That's the kind of ones I like. This one's a man you've probably never heard of. Talking Billy Fisk. An American hero. That's right. Billy Fisk. That's right. That's right. And he is probably the greatest American bobsledder not named Irv Blitzer. Oh, that's so true. Well, Irv Blitzer, let's be honest, Yeah, had some cheating scandals. He had some cheating scandals, but then he went to the Olympics and brought a Jamaican bobsled team. That's right. So I'm just saying, so for Americans, we kind of look at Irv as a bit of a, you know... A little bit less shine on him than the uh, Jamaicans look at him because he cheated. He took some of our gold medals away. But anyway, we're talking Billy Fisk. Billy Fisk. One of the original bobsledders. You know it's so original that uh, his first one was a five-man sled. I and thought they don't that do was that awesome. anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I did want to give a quick shout-out to uh, my friend Dave, who's a yes. loyal listener of the podcast. Um, he's made some suggestions before as far as episodes to do. Um, one of my best friends honestly and a sports nut just like me and uh he's way into the winter olympics and he was just like you should do one on billy fisk and i'm like who's that research him holy crap this is gonna be fun i was gonna say it's one of it's like a perfect episode i'm glad that uh we have access to your friend dave because this one was a good one let's get started all right william mead lindsley fisk the third which is the most little lord fauntleroy rich guy name ever that's weird because i have him as billy slippy fisk so um (laughs) that's where we got different information on that ladies called well hey uh born june 4th 1911 in chicago illinois uh born to beulah and william who was a banking magnet yeah so he definitely came up in high class he was definitely a a rich upbringing yeah this is a shaken not stirred martini kind of guy definitely Um, but uh, went to school in France in 1924 and uh, discovered the bobsled as a sport. Because I guess in the mountainous regions there where they've held numerous Winter Olympics, they're kind of starting to figure stuff out. Like, let's go really fast down this ice. Well, this is the around when he was 16. He, mm-hmm. he uh, discovered this new sport that had to have been extremely thrilling. The other thing that he was doing at that time was skiing. And oh. it was pretty much all downhill sports at that time. And you think about it, it was just like, oh, yeah, that's kind of like the extreme sports of, you know. Yeah, this is the like 90s. X Games of yeah. Europe circa 1920s. It's like, you want to pick up those hot flapper girls? Do the skeleton. It really is because the one man like and the five man, it, it really is this extreme sport you know feel I mean, the rhythm feel the ride get on up it's slippy fisk time oh, that's beautiful <laughs> but that sir is an olympic treasure <laughs> it really um so he studies uh college at cambridge um he studies economics and history weird freaking fact that's exactly what i got my degrees in oh that's so. weird i thought you were gonna say you did it in slippy fisking come on now that we're was get my it. minor chris <laughs> He graduates in uh, 1928, um, and by this time, he's at the Winter Olympics in 1928. And this is what I'm talking about. In the 28 Olympics, they have a five-man bobsled. St. Moritz, Switzerland. That's right. And he is the driver. And as we know... As we know. The driver is the most important man in the sled. He holds everyone's life in his hands. You want that responsibility, Sanka? I think I'll be the brake man. (laughs) 
think we're going to make Slippy Fist the driver. <laughs> I say we make Therese the driver. Um, yeah, again, this one is uh, in Switzerland. The first five-man sled in uh, Olympic history, and yep. he's 16 years old. That's so amazing. Like, to be 16 years old, normally you see that with, like, figure skaters. Yeah. You know, and that's pretty much it. Um, but uh, he's on the team. He's the young, and they end up winning the gold medal that well, year. Well, I-, I wanted to bring this up, and this is why I was talking about it kind of being, like, a- an extreme sport, is you see this almost like this young class of guys doing it because nobody was really doing it before. So like being 16, I feel like wasn't as crazy as it is kind of now because this is like, yeah, no, no, no. It's me and my friends out there. Right. So like, this is us. It's not like the guys before were like, let me show you how it's done. It's like, literally (laughs) he was like the first class of this multiple bobsled downhill extreme, you know. All I think of Mountain is Dew, guys. if he had a video camera. Hi, I'm Billy Fisk and uh, welcome to Jackass St. Moritz. That's so what it would be. That's what we missed out on. <laughs> oh, man. But yeah, he is the driver on bow, this bow, team. Bow. <laughs> and he was the youngest gold medal winner in the Winter Olympics until 1992 um, with a um, Finnish ski jumper named Tony Niemanen. Yeah, so, another 16-year-old broke yeah. that record. 16. They were a hard 16 in those days. Yes. Very much so. So uh, in between this gap, because obviously the Olympics are every four years, he's working at a banking firm because that's kind of what he's doing. <laughs> yes. that That's, I mean, essentially what his profession would be. And he's very successful. That's something else is he has a lot of business success in this time with stuff overseas with England. And we'll bring that back up. He's quite the Anglophile as we'll come to find out that Um, too. He was in a movie production. Yeah. (laughs) In 1932 in uh, the winter games are held in Lake Placid. And uh, if you want to go back and listen to our Eric Hyden episode where they also had the winter Olympics in Lake Placid um, up in New York, um, he carried the flag at the opening ceremony. So that's how important of an Olympian and a star he was for us. He literally carried the flag for us in. And we see that, I mean, because they, they go from five-man to four-man It's bobsled. now a four-man sled, as you will see in that cool we are, runnings. I was going to say that we are more familiar with. Mm-hmm. So uh, They end up winning the gold medal again. Yep. They end up, they're, they're American, I guess, they were dominate, dominant. I was going to say era. that's our bobsled dynasty right there. That's right. old Billy Slippy Fisk and his team. I saw there was only one guy that returned from the yeah. uh, original... So the they're mixing sled. it up. Yep. So you can see who the glue that holds our bobsled program together. Exactly. Know? Exactly. Um, and then uh, it, I wanted to bring this up. In 1936, they have the Winter Olympics. Because he's only 20, and he's already got two gold medals. Yes. He's coming back to be the driver. But he declines to go to the 1936 Winter Olympics. And this is such a... I feel like he was really in the first wave of this anti-German kind of like, whoa, what the hell are they doing over there? Because a lot of people at the time were like, why aren't you going back? And looking looking back in, with retrospect, you're just like, oh, he was really making a stance. He's uh, yeah, he's he had uh, he had some not so nice things to say about a certain mustachioed Austrian. Yep. Who is in charge of Germany at this point? We won't bring him up, but I think you know who we're talking about: Arnold Schwarzenegger. So he decides <laughs> to not go to the 36 Olympics, which people said that he had in the bag. This is what a 
Yeah, they had it. They were going to win. This I mean, is what with him people there. were saying. How good he was compared to other people was like he was the greatest driver in this era. And him declining this 36 Olympics was pretty big. And he ends up doing something else, which I find to be pretty amazing. Yeah. So in 1936, um, a friend of his, Ted Ryan, who was the son of a tobacco magnet here in America, so that that had to be a lot of money, yep. a lot of old FU money uh, being uh, shuttled around. Um, but uh, he brought back some photos from a place in Colorado where he had been skiing. Uh, pretty much a deserted mining town at that yeah. time. But a town will later uh, come to know as a place where the beer flows like wine, where beautiful women instinctively flock like the salmon of Capistrano. Talking about a little place called Aspen. <laughs> Samsonite. I was, that was way, way off. off. Yes. I'm so glad you got that. But, but anyway, it's Aspen. Okay, it, it's yeah. literally a deserted mining town. But they see the he brings back these photos and shows them. And he's like, "Doesn't this look like the Alps? Couldn't we build literally a ski town here?" And they end up building the first ski lodge and yeah, pretty much putting in the first chairlift, chairlift, and the first ski community in America. Yeah, and it's like some of the oldest, coolest things you could ever see from like a bygone era. And now when you go to Aspen, it's basically like the FU money type of place where everyone wants to go ski, all rich people want to come and shop and things like that. And he basically built this town around skiing. Yes. And it makes so much sense because I remember being in Germany in the Bavarian Alps, and it was my favorite place in that country to go because it reminded me so much of back home. Like just the scenery and everything like that. So he 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 did a lot of good when he wasn't in a bobsled. I was gonna say the time taking off. So him not going to the thirty six Olympics, he essentially builds the biggest ski community in America because he saw the potential. Like you were saying, he was just like, dude, that looks exactly like the Alps, in which we know, in which we skied, in which we learned to bobsled, in which we, you know. And since there's nothing here, this. Yes. like, and since there's nothing here, we don't have to tear anything down. We can build whatever we want, and we just make an investment in it. And, and they were rich enough to have that. That's the other thing yeah. is they literally two rich guys were just like, "Well, we have this money. We see this need. Let's do it." And it, it I find that to be pretty amazing because when I first started to reach research him, I was just like, "Oh, bobsled." We'll go into what else he does, which is amazing. And then I started to read this. I was like. Oh my God, he literally came up with this, you know. <laughs> yeah, he's like douche town. Excuse me. I mean, now it's what it's evolved into, definitely. Go home, Californians. All right, I'm sorry about that. But uh, because of his uh, disdain for a certain mustachioed Austrian in charge of Germany, um, most people in America at this time, including Charles Lindbergh, were like, why do we have to go over there? It's yep. not our problem, it's Billy Fisk's problem. And he decides to participate. Uh, this is pretty pretty wild, but um, the quote that I saw, because I guess he wrote his sister. Yeah. And he was talking about business deals that he kind of had with people that he knew over there. Yeah. And we'll get into the group that he joins. But he said, the British has been good to me in good times. I'm going to be good to them in bad time. And I thought that was awesome where he was just like, no, 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 no. They're getting invaded and I'm going to go help. And you can just hear Rick Derringer's real American playing in the background. Like that's when I read that quote, I'm just like, I am a real American. <laughs> but yes, World War II, we're talking about uh, the sequel to World War One. 
I found this, uh, this is something else I found so interesting because he joins this squadron that is kind of kept together from World War One because yeah. everybody was just like, oh, that was the war to end all wars. And then literally the government was just like, nah, we're going to need to keep all of this together because this is definitely not over. <laughs> Appeasement hasn't worked. Exactly. <laughs> um, so on August 30th, 1939, um, he went back to England aboard the Aquitania, a ship, um, with a uh, bank colleague um, and was able to falsify and say he was Canadian. Yes. So both of these guys uh, falsified, I believe, and said that they were Canadians who were obviously under the British Empire, immigrated to England to fight. Yeah. And I mean, that that's during both world wars from a historical perspective. The UK was at a huge advantage because of their overseas colonies, dominions, and what have you, just as far as manpower. It's true. Um, he joined the number 601 County of London Auxiliary Air Force Squadron. Um, off, obviously, you pretend to be Canadian when you go overseas in times of not war, you know? I mean, most people don't say they're Canadian unless they want health care, but this guy. This guy. This guy. Turned it on him. He turned it on. He gave him the old slippy fist. That's what he did. Oh, my God. That's how he got his nickname. All I think I thought of when I was reading this was he's just like the upper crust Brad Pitt and Inglorious Bastards killing Nazis. Just with his snuff? <laughs> yeah, with his snuff. Um, he began, Bear Jew. Bear Jew. He began his training in Yatesbury, uh, Wiltshire. So that's just like a small town. And then he ended up moving for advanced pilot training because he had only flown like barely any before he came, if any at all. And he literally became a fighter pilot. I, it's that daredevil mentality. Because like I, you'd read stories about him like in Europe swinging on chandeliers and he was doing skeleton stuff for fun. Yeah. You know, like he just had that daredevil mentality. Like, like I said, only this is for realsies and scary um but uh promoted to uh pilot officer august uh or march 23rd 1940 and um as an american he pledged his life and loyalty to the king george the sixth yeah which is talk about the stones on this guy you know what i mean so he joins the 601 squadron um rf RAF, and they're a Hawker Hurricane Unit, which is, that's the kind of fighting uh, planes that they were using. Yeah. And uh, they, uh, they're they a unit out of West Sussex, mm -hmm. and they were dubbed the Millionaire Squadron. And yeah. this is what I was bringing up earlier was, this was a bunch of guys who privately practiced as a squadron, and then when war broke out, they were all kind of ready, and the government subsidized their thing, and were just like, here's a bunch of planes. I know you yeah. guys can fly. Here you go. Save and, us from this blitzkrieg. And that's literally what it was, was a bunch of really, and I feel like this is the last gasp of this, but a bunch of rich men with power going to war. You really yeah. don't see this no. after this. It was a bunch of guys who really had national pride and they were just like, no, 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 they invaded us. I understand that I'm one of the richer you know, yeah. people in this area, but I'm going to fight with all of my other friends. And that's why it was called the Millionaire Squadron. People are living in the London subways now to prevent from being bombed. I mean, like, the shit is really hitting the fan, and it's like Winston Churchill, darkest hour yeah, right now. Seriously. 
Um, he wrote in his diary to his sister. Um, he says, I believe I can lay claim um, to being the first U.S. citizen to join the Royal Air Force in England after the outbreak of hostilities. Yes. So take that Ben Affleck in Pearl Harbor. I'm just saying. Take that Ben Affleck. He literally was the first U.S. man to fight. And then now we'll get into what happens. Pearl Harbor sucked. And uh, I miss you. <laughs> August 16th, 1940, in the Battle of Britain, Mm -hmm. um, he took a German bullet to his gas tank, and this ignited a fire on his plane. But he didn't bail out, though. Essentially, he took an on, I mean, uh, his aircraft that was engulfed in flames and took it back to base and landed it. Yeah, and they pulled him out just before it exploded, too, which is so crazy. They literally said minutes before, like, they pulled him out and pulled him free, and then it exploded because it was was on fire. Oh, yeah. And they said that he had severe burns all up his legs and his arms because that's, I mean... Well, there's a fire in your plane. I mean, it's a very closed quarters type of deal. Exactly. But, um, yeah, that's... incredible so like yeah he had gone on some previous missions and stuff and not seen really any action and then he goes on this one his plane comes down he safely lands it and then he goes to the hospital and then unfortunately what happens they he ends up passing away from what they call surgical shock which they just weren't medicating them to the extent anymore. They're literally just like, we're cutting your legs off with this saw. This seems like a recurring theme in all these podcasts. Medicine isn't what it used to, isn't what it is today. It was brutal. Oh, and this God. so th- this was so common because it was literally a term that were just like, yeah, he couldn't survive getting his legs cut off. I don't know. Just, <laughs> I don't know. And it was just like, yeah, that's insanity. Yeah, yeah especially, and I'm not, I'm not guessing they're working with a full deck medically either because there's probably a lot of guys coming back in burned planes yes this is very rough and this was something else that we see is this is like the first push for medical real medical like facilities for these wars because forever it was just like they're dead yeah exactly send a priest out and now yeah and now it was kind of like this first wave of this and yeah i mean he unfortunately Really, there's no way to tell how bad his injuries were coming out of it. It's just that he died. It's just tragic. He dies day. at 29 on yep. uh, August 17th, uh, 1940. Um, uh, Bill Bond of the uh, Battle of Britain Historical Society basically said that while he didn't shoot anybody down, he's still a hero in our book. Yep. And when they buried him, uh, they put a Union Jack and an American flag on his um, uh, coffin. And uh, the quote was always, he died so that England may live. Yeah. And it was a huge propaganda push at that time with Churchill and charts to try and get America involved in this European and now world conflict. Well, luckily he died so Britain could live, keep control of Jamaica yeah. so that they and then in turn could send a four-man bobsled to the Olympics. That's circular logic. In the greatest logic. feel-good story of our generation. Of our generation. Our generation. Thank you, Billy Slippy Fisk McGee. 